welcome to this SNBN SNBN program being live webcast as far as Singapore. So welcome those in Singapore as well as those who are here uh, for this another session of Samsara Nirvana and Buddha Nature. So before we do anything, we'll settle our mind and body by keeping silence and focusing our mind on any chosen object, or any chosen idea or thought that we try to bring ourselves home to this place, this time, this moment. Take a moment here in visualizing the merit field. Buddha Shakyamuni in the center, surrounded by his disciples. Those from his time and those followed him, both in India, Tibet, and other places where Buddhism went. And also think of yourself being surrounded by fellow sentient beings all in human, human form, for their auspiciousness, also for the condition, setting for future rebirth as human beings. Yet at the same time, thinking of them undergoing their own respective sufferings on top of the sufferings that we all commonly share in samsara. Beginning with oneself, think of the suffering of pain. That by very nature of being born in samsara is part and parcel of our life. Through that, think also of the suffering of change. They all ultimately end up into explicit pain. But at the same time, while in their temporary nature as pleasure, pleasurable, as pleasant, pleasurable, now they could be a slippery slope, deceiving, unsatisfying, dragging oneself deeper into 
more of the craving, and then think about these are all rooted in our condition of being in samsara, namely the suffering of pervasive conditioning. How, without that being changed, all of this surface unpleasantness, uncertainty, suffering, sufferings would still remain. Having generated a sense of, a felt sense of peace on oneself, try to extend it to all fellow sentient beings. How some of them are in even much more worse situation, almost having no respite between the sufferings, cross, protest sufferings that they undergo, underpinning or rather underpinned by the pervasive conditioning. And contrast this situation of fellow sentient beings, including oneself, where almost there is no end inside of this suffering, unless something very seismic shift takes place. Now contrast our situation with those of the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arya beings, wonder what might be the reason for there being such a big difference. Is this something fixed? Or could people, beings, change roles? Or rather, those in the suffering realm change their circumstances? better one. So with these thoughts, at the same time, a sense of empathy with the spell of sentient beings, a complete discernment of our condition that's shared by fellow sentient beings. Yet at the same time, our Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arya beings, have completely come out triumphant in their spiritual endeavors and have completely gone beyond the slightest possibility of even suffering, even suffering even a bit. So with this in mind, Let's say these recitations together and try to come up with a felt sense of the respective lines we'll be saying. Maybe stay for a while. Let's stay for a while in this state of bodhicitta that we have just cultivated. 
a wonderful, precious, remarkable mind's mentality that Bodhicitta is, which leaves out no sentient beings, in our aspiration to be fully awakened. deliver ourselves and others from suffering. Once and forever. Just bringing that in our mental state to whatever level of strength, integrity, groundedness we can, to that extent, it is a great blow to the self-centeredness, self-centered thought within us. And through that, to the self-grasping attitude. So once again renew this aspiration to become fully awakened for the benefit of all sentient beings drawing the strength from whatever level of understanding experience one may have. In validating such an aspiration, how it is not just a good, kind thought, kind mindset, it's something that can be realized. And may this session together contribute towards that end, making us, even if it be just a small step forward, be it so nonetheless contribute to this realization. So before we go into the main topic, I just wanted to touch base on what we always have been saying in every session. I go for refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And how do we take refuge in them, how they are capable of providing us protection? Buddhas, by teaching, by showing the path, 
sanghas by being in a great unfailing examples to look to and learn from, as well as we do that from the Buddhas. But the way we actually become protected or begin to become protected is by not only rely on the Dharma of the Buddhas and the Sangha, because with their Dharma in the form of the truth of cessation and through the path, at whatever level they may be, in the case of the Buddha, the consummate state of full awakening, and the consummate state of having abandoned everything that needs to be abandoned, and that of the Sangha in their respective stages of such a progress. Those are all due to their Dharma within them. But their Dharma cannot actually fully protect us unless and until we follow their examples, we follow their teachings, and move forward in generating our own Dharma. And that comes in the form, at the very least, in the, in the form of the state of abandonment of the afflictions at the stage of at the path of seeing. And the, the, the path of seeing itself being the path that engenders, that leads to the first ever actual first-hand taste of a cessation, be that of just the acquired afflictions, but nonetheless, those have been, those would have been rendered completely irreversible, having completely rooted them out. So that's the first ever stage of complete triumph over at least the grossest level of afflictions. But for that to happen, the actual realization, the actual cessation can be made possible by the path of seeing the true in the form of the Arya path of directly perceiving emptiness supported by its method aspect factors, such as bodhicitta, or in the case of Charavakas and particular Buddhas, their very grounded, rooted sense of determination to be free. But nonetheless, in both of these cases, or in all these cases, the main instrument, the main antidote, the direct, actually making happen, the first taste of a realized cessation is the wisdom, the unerring wisdom, directly understanding emptiness. So we can ask ourselves, are we already there? If not, how far away 
are we from there? What does it take to get there? So that's the wisdom part of it. The training in terms of training, three trainings, that's the wisdom grounded on a very firm foundation of concentration that in turn founded on a very strong base morality. So if we have some time to go before we actually have such a wisdom that can that can be effective in engendering the first taste of cessation. That means we might have more work to do, not just in cultivating the wisdom, but even creating the base upon which it could be landed, it could be established, that is a strong base of concentration. And such a base of concentration we are speaking of, at the very least, a combination of vipassana and shamatha. So, and that too is relying on a strong base of morality. So in a way, at least in my case, right now, what I have as a refuge, an actual refuge, by having relied on Buddha as an unfailing teacher, Sangha as an unfailing company, by virtue of their dharmas within them. For me right now, the actual way by which they could communicate their, their protection, communicate or receive their genuinely, compassionately, affectionately driven, protection, efforts, for me, the very means, the only means at this point, is the morality practice. Be that of the Pratimoksha level, or on top of that, that of Bodhisattva level, or on top of that, even that of Vajrayana vows, Vajrayana Receives. Nonetheless, that's all. Is there for me to rely on and make sure, at the very least, some amount, some level of protection is assured? So it's very important to get a very clear picture of where we ourselves are, what we need to do based on our understanding of what the path takes the form of. Rather than be lost in our fantasies that I've spent this many years, some people may have, in, in my case, may have really meditated maybe for a few minutes or whatever, but spending over years, and we will count not the amount of actual amount of minutes spent, but years. <laughs> I meditated twenty years, and I so so 
It may be true, but how well we did in each of those sessions. It's, it's, I mean, some kind of a reality check we need to do every once in a while and be very clear, really clear on what we are capable of doing our best, which is observing our, our precepts and doubling down on them to the best we can. Never letting, never letting any let up on that. Based on that, then build on whatever level of concentration we can. And on that basis, also do our best in generating the wisdom. The wisdom part is hard. And it involves, at least for, for people like me, who do not seem to have any, any strong, reliable habituation in the past. So for them, in the case of cultivating wisdom, it has to start from, from here and now, and that too in the form of intellectual, philosophical search. In Tsongkhapa's, one of his compositions, I think it might be this uh, is his destiny fulfilled or is short Lamrim, where he says, for the beginners, the only way to go about cultivating wisdom is by relying on logic, reasoning, and, and, and embarking on search through that means. That's the only way by which the gate will be opened. And then eventually, by having familiarized more and more on that, and if such familiarization kind of spreads over lifetimes, and then eventually there can be a time when we will be born embedded with those latencies right there. And there, no, then during that time, a mere indication mere sign would be enough to actualize or activate all of those latencies and could really catch up very well, very quickly. And those are the conditions under which Shariputra, with a mere sharing of the four-line things, like which, which looked like very general statement, but that was all they needed to kind of activate all of those, bring out all of those realizations that he had worked for in his past lives. So was the case with Mongolian. And likewise is the case with so many. That's the reason where we have this discussion about sequential path 
and gradualist path and instantation in instant instantaneous. Sometimes they use this term Eupatis. Eupatis and Yeah, I've seen even the word spelled, but when I use it, people kind of go, what? So, I'm not so sure. Anyway, but, but no, not ubiquitous. Ubuddhists. You Buddhists? <laughs> yeah, but there is a term. I did come across that in Emory. They were using it. Anyway, the gradualists and the instantaneous whatever. What's the word for that? How do we construct it? In gradualist and instantaneous. Okay. <laughs> so if you don't let me use my Ubuntuist word, then that's that's what you get. <laughs> Pardon? Yeah, suddenness, we may call it. But that that other word is more exotic. (laughs) And it seems to be more scholarly, I think. Ubutis or Ubutis, whatever. But. (laughs) If I get it right, (laughs) after these years. U B U T I S T. I'm putting my fingers crossed. <laughs> Made sure in your dictionary. <laughs> anyway, that's that's where this discussion comes. It's not one way or the other. So that's why we have. Uh, such practices as such practices beginning with the high level practices, high level practices, and those beginning from very scratch. Okay. And for this to happen, one thing more to make us very firm on our practice of morality is that we need to be able to not only make the most of the time while we have this precious human birth, but also do so in such a way that we could ensure the next one will be as such, the next one will be as such one step at a time. If we do so, then it will be a step forward all the time. Otherwise, forward, backward, forward, backward, that's what we have been doing and getting nowhere. Whereas there can be so many distractions. But we are fortunate in being in such a wonderful, conducive place and that's, that's something also we need to appreciate and recognize and utilize the most. I very often think of 
myself. I, I threw myself in the middle of where I was, and then go around that, rerun that a little bit, and then come back quickly, and then come back, and then see the difference, and really feel very fortunate yeah, at the same time. Feel very, what do you call, mm, inspired and encouraged, or determined, yes, determined to make the most of the, most, most of the remaining time. Who knows how, <laughs> how long that will be. The body is simply saying, uh, you have been around for so long. <laughs> so, yeah, so I just wanted to share that. And in this regard, by uh, reflecting on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I mean, in a way, when we reflect on the Buddha, we are indirectly, or even directly, reflecting on his Dharma within, within him or her. And likewise, it's the case with the Sangha. All those qualities account to, account to their Dharma, and so. It's very helpful to think every once in a while about Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And in a way, our saying the refuge prayer just about at any session should be taken seriously and not too seriously, not too rigidly, but seriously enough to be really present when we say that and cultivate that kind of really move the mind a little bit with that, and that we habituate in remembering them at any unexpected situation. That's when, at the time of death, no matter under what kind of situation, we would have some hope remembering them, having them close by. That would be the best. In a way, if our mind is occupied with our reflection on Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all we will be presented with is goodness, virtues. Wow, we with qualities. <laughs> and so that, that can make a big difference. So I meant to remind myself of this, Of this emphasis on the three, on the on the six, six reflections, six, six recollections, particularly the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, with the hope that eventually, when we have to, when our time comes under any circumstances, one will have self-generated remembrance of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha imbued with a strong sense of confidence, assurance, and also appreciation of their teachings. And that way, if we could make the transition in such a mind state, there's no doubt that 
and a befitting, corresponding virtuous karma can be activated. If we could do that every time we die, then that's an assurance that the path forward is always progressive. Okay. That having said, now we are looking at page 282, right? 282, number 3? Is it? Okay. Yeah, so in this regard, there's one other aspect that's being emphasized in the case of the mind's quality of kind of continuously carrying on, is what we, in Tibetan, we call Ringda and Ringdeju. Sometimes people translate that as the cause of similitude, cause of similar type. So that's, say, at best, the assumption that mind uh, as a phenomena necessarily require a cause of similitude, which means another mind, another mental quality, or if not, uh, latency left by a mental state to be its cause. So it's always demanding as a mental state prior to it. And mental states that follow would always have to have mental states preceding them, or at the very least, a mental state which has gone dormant could intercept, could mediate, but nonetheless, it should be either a mental active mental state, mental uh, event, or a dominant latent state, which is which has all the qualities of uh, manifesting into a full-blown mental event. So that's that's a special quality required of mind. And I see similarity in what uh, biologists speak of the cause for a cell, at least up until now. I think things have not changed since Darwin came with regard to this aspect of the cell theory. By the way, the two things that I try to point out are called the two basic tenets of cell theory. And one is that the smallest life form is a cell, the smallest living thing is a cell, and the other thing is that a cell has to come from another cell. I mean, I still, to this day, I wonder why in the world did they posit that as a basic tenet? It's like getting into trouble. It, it, up until now, that has not been solved. 
even Darwin himself, the best he could do is to come up with a big if or maybe let me let me check here i mean had to give in to the hope that sometime at some point long long time ago millions of years in between something non-life or some collection of non-life elements or compositions aggregated to give rise to the first ever form of life. So let me Okay, yeah, I know where it is. I've come prepared. I don't have to open the whole uh, book text itself. Yeah, the cell theory has two basic tenets. The smallest and the most basic unit of life that satisfies all and all requirements of living is called the cell. This fact arose from the work that established the cell theory. The two basic tenets of cell theory are all living things are made of cells, which means cell is the smallest life form. Second is all cells come from other cells. But then with regard to how did the first cell come about, thinking way beyond it says in, this, in the text that we translated and distributed to monks and nuns, thinking way beyond his time, Darwin imagined the origins of life in an 1871 letter to the scientist Joseph Hooker. It is often said, and, and that's his, now his words, it's often said that all the conditions for the first production of a living organism are present, which could ever have been present. It's like saying all the conditions are present, could be even present now also. But he's saying, with the situation given today, it would be disturbed so easily that life could not form, but kind of suggests. But if, and oh, a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc., present, that a protein compound was chemically formed, ready to undergo still more complex changes at the present changes. At the present day, such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before. 
living creatures were formed. This is all based on if. So in the description it says, okay, the cell theory has held strong for nearly four centuries. But there is always that nagging question, how about the first cell? All cells might arise from pre-existing cells, but then how could the first cell come into being? How did the first, how did the basic unit of life start? We will probably never know for sure, but the consensus among the evolutionary biologists, starting with the first one, the father of evolution. In Tibetan we call, I think in the translation also we have called him Yapchen the great father <laughs> with honorifics attest. Starting with the first one, Darwin, is that at some point life must have started from must have. Why? Why must? <laughs> must have started from non-life. However, this didn't happen in just a few minutes or days. To get life from non-life took millions and millions of years on an earth that has been here for about 5 billion years, in a universe that has been here for 10 billion years. Yeah, but what led them to posit the second basic tenet of cell theory, that cells must come from, all cells come from other cells. So that's very similar. But here, we make this case stronger by experiences based on recollections, as well as by looking into our own situation of how our mind are not similar, how we differ in our dispositions, in our likes and dislikes, in our ability, in our yeah, in our capacities, be that for memorizing, etc., etc., all of those, and on top of all that, as I said earlier, uh, in in the previous talks, the strong difference in the dispositions that become eventually manifest and come to surface when we grow up. Those are strong indications of the need of a mental material, if you will, or a mental phenomena. Likewise, just as it is the case with non-mental physical things, there is always need of a physical phenomena. We may not speak necessarily in terms of cause of similitudes, but there is always the need of a physical phenomena. If that's the case, why not for a mental phenomena, have a mental continuum? By saying that it is one with the brain, only goes so far, but when complex situations arise, particularly even to the scientists themselves, looking into these borderline, gray areas, 
then naturally questions start to arise. And then, interestingly, outer body experiences all of those. If things were to be completely dependent on physical body and whatnot, then many of those who recall their past lives, who come from military people, having died in the military, war situations, very, very troubling situations. Very often, children who recall past lives have, are recalling their past lives as soldiers having died in wars and whatnot, under a very, what do you call, horrendous situations of complete destruction, explosion and whatnot. By that time, not the slightest tinge of anything mental would have been left of the brain or anything. So, in any way, this quality, this, this condition of what we call the cause of similitude, is not necessarily so unique to mind, except in that in the mind case, we are asking for a, a mental, another mind to precede it. Just as it is the case, and accept it so for physical things. So now we have to note that idea to define it, but nonetheless, this, this cause of similitude is not the same as the substantial cause. So not everything that has a substantial cause necessarily has a cause of similitude. So substantial cause is, some in some cases, that could be the same thing. The substantial cause also be the cause of similitude, but in other cases, the substantial cause doesn't necessarily have to be a cause of similitude. As as what what do the scientists say about? Uh, yeah, as, I think this is related to physics. Uh, the nature of sound. How do sound get produced by vibrations? One hitting the other, right? So never the first one becoming the next next one. Something else produces it, becomes it, but not the first moment of vibration becoming the second one, because it ends and then it just is like a pressure, right? Somehow in the in the Buddhist scriptures, in the middle of nowhere, it says yes, sound doesn't have cause of similitude, doesn't require cause of similitude. And I and when I looked into I, I usually wonder why is that, and I, when I looked into science of how physics of how sound is produced, not that I understood it fully, but at least it sounded like it's a pressure that you that you that, that keeps producing the other one, right? 
not that the other one, the first one, grows into it. So, so, so that kind of gives some idea of what a causal similitude uh, is on top of being a substantial cause in the case of the mind. So in the scriptures, in a way, the, the Titanic schools do present their own uh, take on what is that, what does that cause the similitude of a mind. Eventually, the cause of the similitude of the mind of a Buddha looks like. But, uh, and they differ in their refinement in their sophistication, in their refinement, but they do uh, try to attempt to pinpoint what's the cause of similitude of Buddha's mind. And that's our ultimate practice, aspiring as we do to attain full awakening, has to recognize that and kind of cultivate that and nurture that. So the biggest claim in this is something you find in the highest yoga tantra, but they all do make their, their in a way, it's almost like um, placeholders, <laughs> placeholders in, in terms of what the cause of similitude is. For the time being, they have their own placeholders eventually it has to kind of grow into, it has to develop into understanding this, the subtlest, clear-light mind in, in comparison to it, which every other mind, even the so-called foundation of all mind, was by Siddhamatra, they all fall short of even carrying on continuously. Did I contradict myself? So, so, so in 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 comparison to the subtlest, clear, clear light mind, which by its, in its very natural form is even not enough, it has to be cultivated also. But it can retain its very type without having to change that. So that's why it doesn't go, it doesn't transmute, it doesn't need to transmute. And in comparison with that, all the rest of the mind however highly spoken of in any of the sutra schools, they all fall short of that quality of being sustainable all throughout. I have to eventually shift to this mind, which then is the cause of similitude. It needs to be then cultivated into that of the Buddha's mind. So, so in a way, I kind of see the philosophical tenets. If it were to be a book on tenets, it should be, it should be like uh, Gyaso's 
point. But here's a step. Right? They are like chapters progressing, developing on each, on the previous one, eventually into the, the most definite theory, or the most definite understanding. Okay, so so that's the reason why the actual point of transition from this life to another life, from any previous life to this life, the actual point of transition is when nothing but the subtlest mind is left. Anything of mind is nothing. No, no, not there except for the subtlest mind, which is when it would have, it it would have naturally manifest. It would have naturally, what do you call, become the manifest because all other uh, grosser consciousnesses would have subsided, or you call them completely dissolved, or become completely dysfunctional. Not not able to, not able to sustain, not able to carry on. So that's what I was pointing to. And that's what these uh, theories or assumptions with regard to mind is actually, eventually going to boil down to. Not that each and every mind necessarily carries on. Anyway, uh, so, so that aspect of the cause of similitude I wanted to bring up. And in a way, for whether or not we call them cause of similitude, but for all physical things, physical, there's need of a physical, physical thing as a cause. Likewise, for the mind, we say that a prior mind is necessary. And when we say the continuum can never be cut, severed, ultimately, it, 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 it has to uh, resort to to the sadness, clear that mind, not not applicable to other mental states. Okay, let's now move on to third one. Excellent qualities can be enhanced, but never diminished by reasoning. By, but never diminished by reasoning and wisdom. So another way of putting that is the reason why efforts in, into cultivating excellent qualities like love, compassion, etc., which can be refined and their aspects of grasping at inherent existence could be dropped while they themselves still can carry on. And then, definitely, in the case of excellent qualities such as the wisdom, understanding emptiness, wisdom, understanding impermanence, etc., why they, once they get established, they will never diminish or they will never be lost, is because they have the support of the valid cognition. And once you have got that understanding clearly, then no amount of talking you out of that 
will ever succeed. So, so that's the reason. So it, is, it has the backing of a valid cognition. So the another way of saying that it is, it, it is enhanced by reasoning and wisdom is that it is supported by a valid cognition grounded on an understanding, on a rational understanding. And then enhanced further with an experience, experiential layer. Whereas in the case of self-grasping, self-centeredness, self-grasping, self-centeredness, the way you deal with them is a little different. In the case of self-grasping, the way you deal with that is by completely exposing the mistake, the com- completely exposing the total mistaken nature of it, how what it grabs at is totally baloney, right? That's how you expose it and then deal with it. In the case of self-cherishing, I think it's a little different. It's, 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 it's uh, presenting it with how how uh, would you call uh, how destructive it is how uh, unbeneficial it is uh, how what it promises uh, and uh, assumes false short of uh, the capability to deliver on it, like that. Uh, so, in so in any case, once the self-grasping foundation of a self-centeredness is taken away, then it could take a different, not a different form, but it could take a take a form by which its destructiveness would have been taken away, would have been gone, would have been weaned off. Uh, but it would be just confined to, kind of, uh, in a way, confined to itself, no more being destructive to anyone, yet at the same time uh, limiting or concerning the person from benefiting further or... or or kind of, yeah, something like that. So in any case, uh, these excellent qualities, uh, once they are developed, of course it takes time for them to be established at that level of uh, of stability, of kind of uh, conviction, firm and unwavering conviction. But once we get that, then no amount of talking out it can never succeed because it has the baking of a valid cognition, and that. But then the, the the need is for one to kind of familiarize with that stronger and stronger and stronger, such so that uh, one could uh, make good of this possibility uh, of being rooted deeper and deeper and deeper.
So constructive attitudes and emotions have a valid support in reasoning and wisdom. They by themselves do not start out with that kind of a base. So in the case of those of us like me who have not yet understood emptiness, then whatever good qualities or good attitudes I cultivate, there's more possibility of it being kind of grounded on this belief that everything associated with that cultivation has a strong, has an objective reality of their own. And that could be a support to a certain extent, support to the cultivation of that virtue. But then when that part is wind off, it's taken away because it is not necessary. It is not like the lifeline for that positive quality. The grasping aspect, grasping part of it could be slowly and gradually be taken away while at the same time the more pure purity of that good quality can be brought out and can be enhanced. So that's how in the case of the good qualities, there's this prospect of refining it and uh, making it uh, more grounded in reality, yet at the same time not lose any of its own quality. Whereas in the case of afflictions or whatnot, once the base of base of the grasping is taken away, it's like there's no 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 place for any afflictions to ever remain. That's not the case with good qualities, but good qualities do begin uh, for ordinary beings do begin with 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 being mired in grasping any aspect of it being kind of uh, mired in grasping of inherent existence or any aspects of it. So through the support of reasoning and wisdom not only we can generate these attitudes themselves and improve them, but through the support of reasoning and wisdom, addressing the dirts around it in the form of self-grasping, projecting at permanence, etc., those could also be taken away, and thus the purity of it could, could be brought out. Very, very similar to how we refine gold. Constructive attitudes and emotions have a valid support in reasoning and wisdom. They can never be harmed by the wisdom realizing reality. So that's very strong. Instead of harm being harmed by the wisdom realizing emptiness, it could even boost it, even support it, and make and make it even purer. Because one thing we have to be reminded is what His Holiness recently shared uh, in the teaching, how Har Sutra is a wonderful, concise, uh, 
version of the Prachamparamita Sutra, the wisdom gone beyond circle of sutras, because it, in the wake of, in the wake of uh, exposing, in the wake of refuting inherent existence, and thus establishing how, through the lens of ultimate reality, there is nothing. Yet in the wake of doing that, eventually it says that on this basis the bodhisattvas thrive and they progress on the path. And this is the very same basis upon which all the Buddhas of the past, present and future, dependent and developed into who they are now. So that's a very same case here, here, that once the understanding of emptiness becomes part of the cultivation, it, its reach kind of goes to all of the good qualities, and all it does is only improve on them, only make them stronger. Whereas in the wake of doing that, any residues of afflictions would be completely uh, destroyed. That's the reason why the positive qualities gain more space uh, among themselves, between themselves, yet at, at, at the same time, they themselves become more refined and gain more strength, more force to grow further. They can never be harmed by the wisdom realizing emptiness because they are in sync with reality. That's a big force of the good qualities. All other projections, including self-grasping, no matter how strong they are, it is against the reality. And the moment we kind of point our finger at them, they have no other chance but to, but to share with you. Compassion, faith, integrity, generosity, concentration, and all other excellent qualities can be cultivated together with wisdom and are enhanced by wisdom. Whereas when the wisdom comes, self-grasping shies away. And we have to run, 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 run away from them. For this reason too, they can be cultivated limitlessly. So, Maybe we'll leave the reflection next time. Let me do some justice to the questions presented. Yeah. The question that I touched on last time about the, about emptiness as, as an object of one's reflection, cultivation, being a very strong antidote in working the mind. Of course, it, it takes time, but in the scriptures themselves, there are steps to progress along it. And I've heard that Jesun Shirab the one, the, the one disabled, the Tsongkhapa, who established one of the two Tantri colleges. I think you met, you met Tantri college. 
he used to use the gross uh, selflessness of person as a deliberate hmm, tool, as a medium, to eventually lead to uh, this subtle selflessness of person, which is emptiness. And likewise, if we learn the positions of the four tenet schools in succession with regard to what is the mode of existence of things, if we study them in succession and then try to find fault with the, with the, uh, with the first one, and then progress on the, on the next one, then we could begin to see an actual refinement of the next understanding. That's how uh, one progress along the progress along in cultivating the wisdom of understanding in a much more correct, perfect, unerring way just as it is emphasized in Heart Sutra. And, and that's the reason why even the presentation of the Sautantrika Madhamika has been so ex- extolled, spoken of highly in one of Tsongkhapa's texts, I think it is, either the illumination of the intent or his commentary on uh, Nagarjuna's root text, where he raises the stand of the Sautantra Mahatmika as a very skillful step, a very skillful presentation that could be a springboard to eventually understand fully the, the, the view of the Prasangika Madhavika. Because when you contrast, compare them, then you begin to see what is and what is not. Otherwise, once you jump straight to the presentation emptiness, you would have no idea what is this, what is not in relation to or in, yeah, in comparison to the others. Then there's more chance of uh, getting it not quite right. But nonetheless, all of these so-called modes of existence of phenomena as presented progressively along these uh, tenets is very helpful in, uh, at, their, at their own level, helpful in questioning uh, the solidity, the apparent solidity uh, concreteness of things, and to that extent, uh, to that extent, the chances of giving rise to very strong afflictions would be lessened, and then eventually, when one understands it fully, so much so that not an iota, not the slightest tinge of objectivity is left. Yet at the same time, it is not. Uh, in conflict with the conventional reality, the, re- the actual functionality or rationality of things, 
instead it supports it at the same time in terms of its objective uh, existence uh, level it would have completely completely totally uh, refuted it so there the culmination of refuting the objectivity would have come would have come in its full bloom in that not only it has completely it has succeeded in refuting the any 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 level any layer any chance of any objectivity but at the same time would have he would have done so by not uh, by not harming the functionality operationality of the general convention instead it would have even further validated it so that's the reason why if we could this understanding of this would be very strong antidote but it's it it it's prior preparations to get to the right one by the way the subtlest emptiness is presented through the lens of presented through the vein of things being affirmed as dependently a reason so one has to kind of really arrive at a very subtle, delicate balance between conventionality and the lack of inherent existence in such a way that none of them is harmed by each other, but rather they are supported, mutually supported and reinforced. Yet at the same time, the refutation of the objectivity is so, so, so it, it, it has arrived at such a level that no residues of any objectivity is ever left. Yet at the same time, it succeeds in maintaining the 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 functionality, the operationality, the validity of conventional reality. So that's it. Yeah, a question has arisen in the context of your teachings on how good qualities can be developed limitlessly and Gishitapila's teachings on the lack of a divine creator. Essentially, it boils down to... By the way, when we when I think of Gishitapila's teaching, the fact about there being no intention kind of... Uh, then there's there being no intention behind any of the factors coming together in creating things. Uh, it's uh, it's quite intriguing, but at the same time, it leaves me with the question of whatever the intention itself. By the way, I think you will agree that intentions are 
not given rise by the intention to <laughs> intentions do not come with an intention behind them. So even the intention doesn't intend to intend. <laughs> so anyway, that was quite intriguing and that made me think a little bit. It's almost like ruling out intention completely in all of the causes and conditions. But then, no, no, we have intentions. But how do our intentions come? Intentions do not come with an intention behind it, an intention behind it, an intention behind it. Then we would just end up intending, <laughs> not getting anything done, because the, 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 the string of intention has to <laughs> keep coming. Anyway, that's a digression. So the question comes down to this. How did those beings who have already become Buddhas become Buddhas before the rest of us? Oh, yeah. I have come prepared with that, for that. Yeah, by the way, it is, um, I mean, the question that is quite aware of what would be the answer, but still care to ask the question. Uh, Oh, where is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we have all done everything in samsara, all types of negativities, how is it that the causes and conditions come together for those beings to progress along the path while we ordinary beings didn't? Okay, how is it that qualities such as joyous effort, conscientious, conscientiousness, and so forth gained momentum in the Buddha's mind stream, while it did not in mine? <laughs> I'll take help of Shantideva. It is chapter 4. Chapter 4, stanza 13 and going on for several stanzas he really pours down and doesn't stop <laughs> stanza 13 although for the benefit of every creature countless buddhas have passed by yet i was not an object of their care because of my own mistakes And if I continue to act like this again and again, shall I undergo suffering in unhappy, unhappy realms, sickness, bondage, laceration, and the shedding of blood? If the arising of a Tathagata fate, the attainment of a human body and my being fit to cultivate virtue and virtue are scarce, if the arising, the scarce, when will they be born again? Although today I'm healthy, well-nourished, and unafflicted, life is momentary and deceptive. The body is like an object on loan for but a minute. And with behavior such as this, I shall not win the human body again. So we kept going one step, two step back, one step, one, and just found ourselves in that. By the way, we have not done everything. In samsara, of course, the questioner is saying everything, all types of negativities. In a way, we have done everything samsaric, nothing nirvanic. 
That's the reason we are in samsara. They begin to do some things nirvanic, bit by bit by bit, and eventually got full nirvana, none of the samsara. <laughs> by the way, in, in one of the texts I was working on, it said that Maitreya had developed bodhicitta some 42 great eons before Buddha Shakyamuni. But Buddha Shakyamuni caught up <laughs> and became Buddha first. <laughs> became Buddha before him. So, just look at ourselves. As I said earlier in our beginning session, the actual things that will matter is ultimately the wisdom, understanding emptiness directly, nothing short of that directly, which would mean supported by a strong method aspect factors. That precludes having developed very strong concentration, of which the least level is shamatha. On top of that, vipassana. Oh yeah, not the least amount is combination of shamatha and vipassana. So one have one would have developed vipassana, and that in that. Includes having attained shamatha before that, and for that, a very strong base of morality practice, and that doing not just for one time, but keep on doing and keep on building on it, life after life, life after life. So this is the reason why because Buddhas have become Buddhas before us. They earned it. <laughs> By the way, in, in Shantideva himself, he says that the, the root of Buddha's teaching is Mepa. I'm just using the Tibetan term because I don't know how to convey it in English. <laughs> Somewhere in the, in the Shantideva text itself, it says Mepa. It's either aspiration or inspiration or interest. It starts with that. Look at most other people, right? We, I'm not saying they're not paying attention enough to Buddhism, <laughs> but to inner world, where things really matter to their mind. Most people are really outward oriented hardly looks inside and looks what if external things, external positions, external uh, factors as the ultimate goal to achieve and feel very, feel very assured that that's what's going to make them happy. Despite the fact that it has failed them again and again, but still so, so we have looked, what is the expression, looked away 
turned our back, turned our back to where it needs to be, where we need to pay attention. And if we keep and we keep doing it, each time we are born, thinking that this is the only first and the last life, then where do we get? I mean, it is quite imaginable to think eons could pass, nothing would have changed. Because you keep thinking, this is the only life. I better make most of it, burning this and this. If we keep doing this again and again and again, I mean, eons could pass. And nothing, yeah, no actual development can be found. It's, it's like a, a dog kind of chasing its own tail. And you look at the clock, it has five hours passed. It has not gone. <laughs> Still stuck there. Okay, we will leave it there for today. And let's dedicate our merit. <laughs> 